We are embarking on a brand new series today called It's Okay to Not Be Okay. I'm sitting on our stage at our central campus, a stage where this coming summer, the Broadway musical Beauty and the Beast will take place. Now, over the years, millions of people have watched performances on this very stage. I was thinking about that this past week. There's a big difference between the front stage and the backstage. You see, in the backstage, there's all kinds of chaos taking place. There's sprained ankles. There's broken bones sometimes. There's people running into each other. There's relational rifts. A lot of chaos happens on the backstage. But when the lights come on the front stage, it's, it's totally different. Everything seems to be okay. You see, in the front stage, there's lights, there's camera, there's action, there's perfection. There's this image of everything is okay. I thought about that as a parallel to what's happening in our world today. Because we all know in our world today, things are not okay. And sometimes I think that we as human beings, you know, we live in this world and we have to project to the world that everything is okay. And at Dream City, we long to be this place where everyone is welcome because nobody is perfect and all people matter to Jesus. We want to be a place where people um, who are not okay can come and wrestle with questions like, how do I hang on to God when it's not okay? What do I do when I'm filled with disappointment and doubt and confusion and anger and fear? How do I keep on going in life when life is not okay? And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks. Well, to start this series, I want to look at one of the oldest, most powerful stories, not just in the Bible, but in all of human history. So we'll begin reading Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man named Job. Now this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So the Bible says that in the land of Uz, there lived a man named Job. Now, nobody knows where Uz was. The Bible says it was in the east. We also know that when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, they settled in the east. So east of Eden in the Bible became a place or a picture of a place where life is broken. A place where life is not okay. Now in the beginning of Job's story, everything is just fine. It's ideal. Everything is okay. Job is a very pious and cautious man. So cautious that he even offers sacrifices for his children just in case they sinned. He says, maybe my kids have sinned. He's a very good parent, very loving parent. And God gives him a wonderful 
and blessed life. But trouble is coming to us. You see, us is the place where bad things happen to a really good man. Us is the place where suffering comes without warning or even explanation. And it feels like God is nowhere to be found. Us is the land of not okay. By the way, all of us will spend some time in this life in the land of us. I don't know. Maybe you're there right now. Divorce. Anxiety. Depression. Disappointment. Problems with your kids. Addictions. Financial weight. Crushing guilt. See, that's the land of us. But notice in verse 6, there's a radical shift in scenery. The writer sets up the book of Job kind of like a play. That's why I'm sitting on this stage today. But this play is going on in two different locations. So picture a big theater with two stages. There's a lower stage and an upper stage. The lower stage represents what's happening down here on earth, while the upper stage represents what's happening in heaven. Now, gang, this is so crucial to understanding Job's story. We, the reader, know what's going on in both settings. But the characters on earth do not. All they can see is what's happening on the lower stage on earth. Job cannot see or hear what's happening on the upper stage. So let's find out what's happening on the upper stage. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth quite like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And so Satan leaves the upper stage, and he goes to the lower stage, and he attacks Job. Job loses everything. He loses his wealth, his livestock, his servants, his kids. Can you imagine that? He loses everything. And here's how Job responds in verse 20. At this, Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. This is an act of mourning. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. In all this, Job did not sin. So get the picture. Job grieves, he mourns, but then he gets up and he worships and speaks words of praise and blessing to God. The Bible says, in all this, Job did not sin. That takes place on the lower stage. Okay, now then the story switches back to the upper stage. Job chapter two now, verse three. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God 
and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now hit the pause button for just a moment. From here on out, the story will be played out on the lower stage. But we need to talk for a moment about what's going on on the upper stage up in heaven. Because this looks really strange to us. See, for a lot of people, the key question about the book of Job is this. Where is God? Where is God in the midst of suffering? But really, that's not the key question in the book of Job. The key question on the upper stage is found in Job chapter 1 and verse 9, where Satan asks God, Hey, does Job fear you for nothing? Satan says, Hey God, you know, Job is devoted to you and worships you because it's in his best interest. Job loves you the way the cookie monster loves a cookie jar. But turn off the faucet of blessing in his life and watch how fast Job will turn off the faucet of his devotion to you. And the idea being floated here is this. Satan says a covenant of self-giving love, a covenant of of self-giving love and sacrifice really is a farce because everybody is looking out for number one. Just watch what Job does when he stopped blessing him. By the way, this is not just an ancient idea. In Richard Dawkins' book called The Selfish Gene, he maintains that the fundamental life source in the universe is nothing more than the survival of the fittest, just the passing on of our genes. And we're just particles of that process. That's all we are. And God's message in the book of Job is this. It's this view stated by Satan is really so cynical. It's so warped and wrong. At the core of this universe is a generous, self-sacrificial, self-giving God. And therefore, hope in a loving God is infinitely bigger than the pain of suffering. That's what's at stake in this book. And that's what I want to apply to your life in the next few minutes. Let's go back to the, the story. Now Job gets hit with a second wave of suffering. Verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord the upper stage. And he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So Job responds to his suffering again. But this time, there's some subtle differences from from his response after the first wave of suffering. You see, in the first wave of suffering, he falls to his knees in worship. He says, the name of the Lord be praised. In the second wave of suffering, he does not. Instead, he goes to an ash heap. This is like the town dump. Maybe this is an act of grieving. Or maybe he's been quarantined to that dump like a a leper. Well, his wife then tries to encourage him in verse 9. She says, why don't you just curse God and die? That's probably not going to cheer him up very much. One writer puts it like this. Maybe Job's greatest suffering was God didn't take away Mrs. Job. I didn't write that. That's what the writer writes. Let me say a word about Mrs. Job for just a moment. Because I think she gets a bad rap. She too has lost it all. 
She's lost her wealth. She's lost her home. She's lost her children. She'll not have to give care to a horribly diseased husband until he dies. And then she will be left alone and destitute. So she simply gives voice to thoughts that surely have occurred to Job himself. Thoughts that occur to all of us when life gets deeply not okay. Now, Job doesn't take her advice, but notice what he, what he says to her in verse 10. He says, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? See, Job is now struggling to understand God, the nature of God. He's begun to ask himself, is God the kind of person who sends trouble? Is God really good? A little doubt creeps in. Also notice in verse 10, it says, And all this Job did not sin in what he said. Remember after the first wave of suffering? He said, it says, And all this Job did not sin like at all. But now after the second wave of suffering, it says, He did not sin in what he said. Job is still guarding his tongue, but he's begun to struggle. He's begun to doubt in his heart maybe the goodness of God. Well, then Job's friends hear about all his troubles, and they go out to comfort him. Verse 12, it says, When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. You know, usually when you visit somebody who's in really bad shape, you try to cheer him up a bit, right? He's not so bad. You're looking so much better than I thought. But have you ever been really sick and had somebody visit you and take one look at you and burst into tears and rip their clothes off? That's really not going to cheer you up all that much. I remember years ago when I was maybe 12 years old and my brother Matthew was maybe seven years old and we were having dinner around the dinner table. Christy was a year older than me. She's about 13 years old. And, and, and my dad had come home that day from getting some blood drawn because the church had taken out an insurance policy on him. And he too had taken out a personal insurance policy for our family in case he died. And so, you know, my brother Matthew was very curious because my dad had this bandage around his arm. And he said, Daddy, what happened to your arm today? Why is there a bandage around your arm? And my dad thought he'd play it out a little bit, you know, try to garner a little sympathy. So he really played it up. He said, well, son, I got some, some blood taken out here today because um, I took out an insurance policy for, your fam for our family. And, you know, and, in, in case I died, I want, wanted you to be taken care of. And he just knew that even the thought of him dying would, you know, elicit so many, you know, sad feelings. And so he said, so I, you know, if I, if I die... You know, um, the family gets, you know, a half a million dollars. And Matthew, without skipping a beat, said, a piece? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it wasn't the response my dad was looking for. Would that be a piece, Dad, or for the whole family? <laughs> I love this next part of the story. Verse 13. Then his friends sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Can you imagine sitting with someone in silence for seven days and seven nights? This was such a powerful act that it actually became part of Jewish life. To this day in Judaism, folks will speak of sitting Shiva or sitting sevens, where friends will come and sit with one who mourns over a period of a whole week. I think this may be the greatest example of what Paul commands us to do 
in Romans 12, 15, where he says, mourn with those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn. He doesn't say, try to fix people who mourn. He doesn't say, give them a lot of advice, you know, those who are mourning. Tell them they shouldn't mourn and that they ought to be more helpful or have more faith or pray more and then things will work out. You know, some of the stupid things we say to people when they're not okay. Paul just says, no, mourn with those who mourn. And that's what they do. And it's interesting. After seven days are done, they'll speak a lot. And they'll get in trouble for what they say. They're kind of like Dorothy's friends in The Wizard of Oz. If they only had a brain, if they only had a heart. But here, boy, their silence was just brilliant. You know, this is a big reason why we have small groups here at Dream City. All of us at certain times in our life, we need a safe place where we can talk about what's going on when things are not okay. You need people to come and sit with you and bring you food and pray with you and encourage you. And you can do that for somebody who is suffering. You don't have to fix them. Just be there with them. Just mourn with them. Well, finally, after seven days, Job speaks. What will Job say? You know, if he can just repeat what he said in chapter 1 when he said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This test will be over. And Job will be a really short, happy little book. What will Job say? Job 3 and verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Wow. You know, this is why Job didn't have a really big television ministry. He wasn't the most positive guy in the world. Because for the next 28 chapters, gang, Job pours out a level of bitterness and confusion and sorrow and doubt and anger toward God that is absolutely staggering. For an example, in Job 6 and verse 4, he says, The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. He says, God, you're shooting arrows at me. Or Job 19 and verse 6 Where Job says, God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. I hear people say sometimes, you need to have the patience of Job. And it kind of makes me wonder if they've ever read the book of Job. Because Job's words in this book are incredibly impatient. How long? Why me? Where are you, God? What's going on? In his book, Job accuses and he blames and he challenges and he confronts and he attacks God, not as a skeptic, not as an atheist, but as a believer. And he does this in such an honest, raw way that his three pious, God-believing friends can't take it anymore. And they say, Job, what are you saying? And they argue with him and they present an alternative point of view of what's happening to him. Now, their point of view is wrong. It's skewed. It comes from what is called Mesopotamian wisdom literature. If you were to go to, if you were to, go to a Mesopotamian bookstore 3,000 years ago and go to the self-help section, you might find a book that reads this way. If you're suffering, you must have done bad. And if you're prospering, well, you must have done good. So just identify what you've been doing wrong and stop doing that, and then your life will be good again. And boy, if you read the book of Job, then you probably notice that the middle 30 chapters get incredibly, you know, redundant and boring. And that's okay to say about the Bible because that's actually on purpose. 
You see, the writer is hitting us over the head time and time again, telling us that this thinking is wrong. Gang, we don't earn our blessing and we don't earn our suffering. Job says, I'm living proof of that because I was so careful to live a good and upright life and yet I still experienced unfathomable suffering. In fact, Job pleads his case in Job 23. He said, if I only knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and I would fill my mouth with arguments. Of course, nobody can see the great and powerful God. Not nobody. Not know how. But Job says, you know, if I could just see God, I'd take him to court. If he would just show up, we'd kind of fight it out man to man. And in chapter 38, Job finally gets his wish. It says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Can you imagine being Job in that moment? Shaking his fist and challenging God. And then God shows up. And this is what God says. Who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. Prepare to defend yourself. I will question you. You answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. You know, this is so interesting to me. When God appears to Job, he never gets around to answering Job's question of why. Why is this happening to me? And this is very deliberate. God never tells Job um, what what the writer has told us about the upper stage scenes of chapter 1 and 2. God never tells Job about that conversation between God and Satan. Instead, he just turns around and asks Job a whole bunch of questions that Job himself can't answer. Now, why does God do this? Kind of looks like God's being mean to Job. Like he's picking on a God who's way dumber than God is. And, of course, we're all dumber than God is. Well, part of what's happening here is God is pointing out to Job that he has a finite mind and a limited point of view. And he shouldn't expect to be able to understand everything about the great and powerful God. That's true for all of us. But something else is going on here that is way more important. I want you to dial in right now because this is going to help some of you. One Old Testament scholar points out that God's questions here are leading somewhere. They're indicating something about the kind of person that God is. I'll give you a few examples. He says in chapter 38, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? This is God asking Job. And a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives. An uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Now in the ancient world, this would be very striking because life depended on rainfall. They'd never waste water in that day. So why would God water a land or no one lives. Well, because that is the nature of God. He is a God of gratuitous goodness. He is a God, friends, who is good for no reason at all. He is a God who gives just because he loves to give. He's that good. That's his nature. It goes on to say that God delights in creating animals 
that are of no apparent use at all. They're not strategic at all. Chapter 39 says, The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings of the stork. God says the ostrich will never fly. She legs eggs on the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She doesn't even remember where she left her kids. She'll never be mother of the year. She's a lousy parent, unlike Job, who was a really good parent. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. She's the fastest two-legged animal on earth, 30 miles an hour plus when she runs. God said, look, I made the ostrich because I have a need for speed. I love this silly, crazy, useless animal. He goes on to say, look at the behemoth, probably a hippopotamus. It was considered a chaos monster in that day, something to be destroyed, totally useless to them, but not to God. He says it ranks first among the works of God. God says, I had my A game on the day I made the behemoth. Best thing I ever did. God goes on to talk about how he delights in the wild ox that will never serve farmers by plowing. Or wild donkeys that'll never be tamed. Or mountain goats that give birth in secret places where no human being will ever see. Or the Leviathan, which is probably the crocodile, that nobody will ever be able to tame or use for food unless you go to Papados and order alligator as an appetizer. Then you can eat it as food. This whole section, God is creating and caring for and giving to and delighting in animals that are good for nothing. No purpose that any human being could come up with. And why would God make a world like that? Why would God make these crazy animals? Well, an author named Annie Diller puts it like this. The creator loves pizzazz. I love that. So he reveals or he revels in the beauty and the goodness of the least strategic of his creatures. Isn't that beautiful? That's our God. He's good for no other reason than he loves to be good. He loves to give. You see, throughout history, there's been a distinction between beauty and the sublime. Beauty is goodness that we can see, enjoy, and understand. But the sublime is different. The sublime is transcendent. It evokes mystery and wonder and awe and worship because it points to another world where everything is the way it's supposed to be. Beauty is the rainbow. The sublime is somewhere over the rainbow, way up high. There's a land that I've heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, friends, there is a God that is gratuitously good and uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving. And he just gives for no good reason at all. He can't help himself. He loves pizzazz. It's in his nature to be good. It's interesting. Job never does find out about the conversation in heaven for a very important reason. It's not because the writer left this out. He never finds out about that conversation between God and Satan because Job's story is your story. And we have to live on this not okay earth. And like Job, 
we don't get to know or see or hear or understand everything that happens in heaven. But Job does find out something that's way better. He finds out who God is, that he is irrationally loving and gratuitously good and unbelievably self-giving. And Job says to this God in Job 42, you know, my ears have heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And that's enough for Job. God's goodness and the reality of God's presence in his life are enough for Job. You know, this crazy book, Job, ends in a strange way. God says to Job's friends, his comforters, I am angry with you because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, imagine how confused Job's friends must have been because when Job complains about God and accuses him of shooting him with arrows and not being faithful, they stick up for God. So they know they're in the right. But God says, nope, Job was right and you were wrong. But if Job will pray for you, I'll forgive you. So Job prays for them. Now catch this. And God forgives his defenders when they are prayed for by God's relentless attacker. What a weird book. Then we're told something strange. Look at verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He gave him a double portion, the Bible says. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hepuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, we read right over that. But something remarkable happened here that would have been very striking back in that day. The writer doesn't tell us the names of Job's seven sons. But he does tell us the names of Job's three daughters. And in Hebrew genealogies, that was unheard of. It screams for an explanation. Not only that, he gives his girls strange names. Generally in Hebrew, Hebrew names are very serious. They really mean something. But these three names are all about beauty. Jemima meant a dove. The picture of a beautiful dove. Even to this day, we, we call our soap, our, our makeup, you know, dove cosmetics and dove uh, soap. Keziah meant cinnamon a prized spice. Anybody here like Cinnabons? Can I get a witness out there? Cinnabon is one of the greatest proofs of the existence of God in my book. They're amazing. Then Karen Hapuk meant a box of paint. So Joe basically names her after makeup. It'd be like naming your daughter Revlon or Maybelline. Notice he also gives them an inheritance. And in the ancient world, this would never happen. Uh, fathers would always give the inheritance to their boys because they would take care of their dad in his old age. It's like a 401k. A father with seven sons would never give his stuff to his daughters because all the stuff would go to the in-law side of the family. It'd be like throwing your money away. Sons were financially strategic. Daughters were not. So the question is, why does the writer include this 
in this chapter. He includes it because now Job has changed. Job now delights in giving to the least strategic creatures. He has become gratuitously good and uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving. Job gives for no reason at all when it will not profit him or he will not gain by it. He has become the wonderful wizard of us. Does that remind you of somebody else? Reminds me of someone who would come centuries later. And when he would talk about God, he would sound an awful lot like God sounds in the book of Job. He'd say things like this, Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that Solomon in all his glory was not dressed like one of these little flowers that's here today and gone tomorrow. Why would God make the lilies so beautiful? Because God is a God who can't help himself. He is gratuitously good and lavishly giving. And we live in his, in his world. And this man would live in the east, east of Eden, in a not okay world. And even though he was without sin, he too would suffer and he would die. And when he died, we're told that the curtain in the temple that hid the presence of God was ripped in two. And on the cross, we could see the love of God, even though God didn't look at all like we would expect such a great and powerful God to look like. And Satan says, pay no attention, pay, pay no attention to, the, to the man behind the curtain or beyond the curtain. Pay no attention to the man beyond the curtain on the cross. Because he knows if you'll take time to gaze upon the cross, you'll see the ultimate expression of the goodness of God. And you cannot help but fall in love with him. You see, Satan was dead wrong about Job. He said, God, if I can just bring suffering to Job's life, watch how fast he turns on you. The central question is not, where is God in suffering? The central question is, could a human being hold on to God? Could a human being hold on to faith and love and goodness when life doesn't seem to pay off? When life is not okay. And I'm here to tell you today that one can and one did. And his name was Job. Job couldn't see the upper stage. Job couldn't know that his faithfulness had meaning beyond his wildest dreams. Job couldn't comprehend that something vast and eternal and magnificent was at stake in his little life. Sitting on that ash heap. Scraping boils off his skin with shards of broken pots. Sick and mock and confused and hopeless. Job's faithfulness in a sin suffering was being used by God to vindicate, vindicate God's whole wild adventure and covenant love. His honesty and perseverance have been encouraging billions of people for thousands of years who live in the land of us. Hang on. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Hang in there. You have no idea. God is so close to you. God is so good. The writer says that not only to Job, but he says it to you. But for now, we live in this land of us. A land where sometimes we experience anxiety, fear, failure, divorce, 
relational breakdown, confusion and hurt. We all experience those things. Why? I don't know. Does God promise to be with me through it? Absolutely. How long will it last? I don't know. Does your response matter? More than you can possibly imagine. I want to thank you for watching this message today. I believe that right now as you're watching this video, God is speaking to your heart. God is speaking to you about a new life, a new future, a new hope. The Bible says that the way we connect with God is we actually call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says, he who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's almost like taking your cell phone out and making a call to somebody that you really love. You're making the call. And I want to encourage you to make the call to God today. And as you do, he promises to forgive your sins, to adopt you into his family, and to give you a hope and a future. So today, if you are ready to call upon the name of the Lord, would you just close your eyes right now and just sincerely say these words to God. Dear Heavenly Father, just say those words. I ask you today to be the leader of my life. I ask you to forgive me for my sins and adopt me into your family. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. So I give you my heart today. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says if you prayed that prayer, he heard you and he forgave you. So I want to say to you, welcome to the family of God. Go find a great church to be involved in. If you don't have one, come join us here at Dream City and we'll help you live out the Christian faith and grow closer to Jesus. God bless you all.